Welcome to the Counselors of Real Estate Thought Leaders podcast series. In this episode, you'll hear candid and compelling perspective from subject matters experts who not only represents diverse and novel thinking, but question prevailing thinking. I'm Michelle Cuillard, 2021 Global Chair of the Counselors of Real Estate and President and CEO of Buzak Real Estate and Equities in Montreal, Canada. The Counselors is a distinguished international group of accomplished leaders within the real estate landscape, solving the world's most complex real estate challenges. Experienced, innovative, and credentialed problem solvers, Counselors practice in 20 countries and offer expertise in more than 50 real estate disciplines across all asset types and classes. Each has earned the prestigious CRE designation. Our guest for this episode is John Biggers, CRE, Regional Vice President of Cushman and Wakefield, Iowa Commercial Advisors in West Des Moines, Iowa. John has directed the management, leasing, and sales of a diverse portfolio of commercial assets for private and institutional clients in the US, Europe, and South America. He has a particular expertise in property and asset management, disposition of distressed assets, and receivership services. John's counseling assignments include portfolio transitioning from four families, developing commercial real estate operations, and strategic growth planning for commercial clients. Welcome, John. Pleasure to have you here. Thank you. So let me begin with uh, with this question, uh, John. So when confronting commercial loan defaults and protecting distressed assets, what types of solutions are you most often seeing from lenders and servicers? Well, to to start off with, and and thank you again for the opportunity to talk about our our work here a little bit. Um, we've been very lucky, even though we're we're based here in the Midwest we've gotten the exposure to work throughout the country, predominantly and somewhat internationally in this arena of work. Um, over the last 20 plus years, we've handled a variety of distressed assets for a variety of different types of clients. And over the course of that time, we've developed relationships with many of these types of service providers. So periodically, at, at least annually, if not more than that, I check in with those clients. And so to somewhat, again, prepare for this today, I just did kind of my annual check-in. And, and that included the, the top five special servicers out there in the country, uh, the asset managers, the people are on the front line, bringing properties back, having workout discussions. It included local and national banks. It included a variety of attorneys and law firms, both uh, locally for me, as well as from around the country that are handling distressed assets, bankruptcies, those types of lines of work. And then it also included some of our private and institutional clients that are more on the other side of this, either they're seeing stress in their own portfolio or they're seeing opportunities and they're sitting on the sidelines or they're starting to acquire some of these opportunities. So to frame my perspective, it's, it's my perspective, but it's based on those ongoing conversations and just trying to keep an idea on the pulse on the marketplace. Um, I, I don't think it's any big secret for most of us out there. The biggest areas of stress right now, we all seem to be seeing is in the hospitality sector. Um, Michelle, you and I just sat in on something recently and they were talking that they're seeing about a 20% uh, default and failure rate across the board at, at a minimum and probably growing in the hospitality sector. I think it's, it's interesting. Some of my clients are 
not in that arena, but are looking to get into that arena now. Um, they see that as a potential line. It, it obviously requires a different line of management that most of us are not exposed to, but they're looking for some opportunities to try to pick that up. I know I, locally I have some investors and they continue to ask me if I'm seeing hotels yet. They're wanting to know if we're going to go ahead and pick up some hotels and if there's some opportunities to buy. Retail. I think we could spend this entire time talking about retail by itself. We could mm-hmm. also talk the whole time about the office sector and what's going to happen with that. But, but focusing on retail, retail right now is, retail is struggling. It's not struggling because of COVID. It's just added because of COVID. It was struggling already. There's a variety of reasons out there. We've all been very aware of that, whether that's the internet base or not. All of that said, uh, personally, I own a few shopping centers. We're looking to buy additional properties with that with some of our clients. I'm not sour on the industry sector at all. I'm not sour on bricks and mortar at all. I just think you have to go in and making sure that you're buying good product in good locations and you know what you're doing and you know how to manage through that with your tenants. With that said, it's an environment that has continued to struggle when you can't open your doors for an extended period of time, when people can't buy your product, buy your services, eat your food, have your food delivered to your door, whatever it may be, it's a struggle. And so it's just been a one-two punch. I, I walked in my office today. I'm normally at home. I walked in my office today and I had two more giant packages from FedEx with bankruptcy documents. Um, I could go down the line of all the different bankruptcies that I'm tracking, tracking, excuse me, right now with a variety of our retailers. And some of these are food providers. Some of these are larger scale retailers. Um, fortunately, as we continue to try to work with these retailers, I think one of the biggest keys is just trying to be creative and knowing when to cut your losses short. Some of them will definitely get deep. Some of them are going to have some decent um, delinquencies. But if we can see the light at the end of the tunnel with them, if we believe in what they're doing, when we walk in their stores, their people are there, the shelves are stocked, they're providing good service, the customers continue to want to go, we're going to do what we can to try to help them and work through these times. When we go in and it's the exact opposite of everything I just said, and, and it's bleak, it's dirty, things are going then it's time to cut our losses and get rid of those operators, whether that's a local operator or a national operator. And, and that's really kind of the approach. It really just gets back to our management of their management. And how can we work with them to try to help them or not help them through these times? Um, the food sector has been just punished for everybody's reasons. I was on the phone last week with one of my, one of the top special servicers in the country for confidentiality, I'm just going to group all of them into a big bulk there and not talk about them specifically. But they have a heavy exposure of restaurants in New York City. Mm-hmm. My son lives in San Francisco. You can not only not eat inside, you can't eat outside. Well, how long can you do that? Whether you're in New York City or you're in San Francisco or you're in Des Moines, Iowa or Kansas City, that's going to be a struggle for many of these operators. And so if you're alive today, you've done well. You've been able to survive 12 months. But how much more can they do that? So hopefully once we get through winter, if most of these operators can get through a few more months of winter, um, a little bit of slow time, more people become vaccinated, more markets start to open up, they can get through this. And I think the world will hopefully start coming back and people are going to want to spend some money again. What do you see, John, in, in terms of workouts and options? Is that a... Um... I mean, you know, I mean, you you, you can uh, very well see uh, lenders now that want to 
repackage portfolios. Um, and, uh, and there's a lot of money out there as we, as we all know, uh, is auctions a, a, a way to go? I mean, there's, there's often uh, that way of proceeding and uh, it has its positive and negatives. What do you see about that? You know, it's, it's interesting um, for many of us that have been receivers for many years, we, a lot of us got in the business as a complement to our core lines of just brokerage and property management anyway. Right. So as traditional commercial real estate providers, being a receiver was a complement to that. And you took on the extra work, all the headaches, all the drama, all the legal stuff, all of the th- opportunities, as well as all the extra work to be able to be involved with the asset to become intimately known with the asset and then to try to help sell the asset on the backside. And the interesting thing is, is most of the bigger enterprises out there now have all gone to an auction model to -hmm. dispose of those assets. Um, they've, They've taken the meat off the bone, so to speak, from people in our business. Now, they will tell you, and, I, and I'm not disputing this at all, they will tell you that in their experience, they're, they're getting higher pricing valuations if they create a more competitive and timed pricing model through an auction process. So most of the big servicers all have their own in-house auction model now. And when it gets close to that point where we're ready to dispose of the asset, we simply start working with them to dispose of it and go from that point forward. The the interesting thing, though, as a receiver and the number of the assets that we've got under control now is with that in mind, we have to make sure that we're being compensated. We're minimizing our liability exposure to make sure that we can provide the level of service we need. But my model, instead of doing receiverships more as a flat fee basis, is now going on to an hourly time. And, and I'm not catching much pushback by the courts at this point to do that, but it just seems to make more sense. And um, you have obviously that high learning curve in the first few days, few months, and then it starts to hopefully slow down a little bit. Right. Interesting. Uh, you, you've touched it a bit, uh, John, on my second question, but I, I'd just like to develop a little bit on it. Over the last uh, three quarters of 2020, what level of shortfall of depressions have you seen in income stream? Uh, is there a, a property sector that may surprise people in terms of some level of distress, but longer term? I mean, you, you've talked a bit about hotel, hospitality, and retail and food sector, but maybe develop a little bit more on that. And do you see other uh, asset types that also could be, uh, you know, uh, considered distress on a longer term just than just a, a year or a year and a half away? I do. I, I think. Um, we haven't really talked about multifamily at all. And mm-hmm. what I'm seeing, the interesting thing, that obviously everything we're going to say could be slightly different in any given market. So, you know, I was referring to New York and San Francisco earlier. Well, right. completely different markets in and of themselves. In a, in a smaller market, whatever I say is not going to apply. The interesting thing is, is I think most CBDs have seen a large shift of why do I live here? Why do I pay these extra rents? Whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40% more to live in the CBD. Well, I do that so that I'm close to work. I can walk down the street. I can have entertainment. I can have a variety of things. My people and friends are all close by. Well, that just ended. And so 
how long can those operators continue or how long can those renters continue to pay those kind of rents and justify that? And, and is the attrition going to be out of those CBD marketplaces? Um, I, I know a number of people you were seeing the flow out for many, many years. You were starting to see an influx of people come back to the cores of cities. Well, this is going to change that again and maybe shift it back out. And so it's kind of that ebb and flow in each individual market. At the end of the day, I think that creates both a threat and an opportunity. If you own a large portfolio of downtown properties at this point, I think you're going to see some stress. The interesting thing is, is that the incentives that I see to lease a downtown apartment are tremendous to refill that box. And so you might, as an investor, if I'm looking at a property and, and I'm just going to throw a simple number out there, but let's say, for instance, a CBD apartment is two bucks a square foot on a monthly basis right. in, in some Midwestern based marketplace. Well, I take a look at that and I'm like, okay, two bucks a foot, that's our average rents. But on the front end, you don't know that maybe it's taken three months free rent to get that 12 month lease. True. And it's the same game we all play in this business to make that rent roll look good. Yep. And, and you've got to know what you're doing if you're looking to buy any of these assets or value these assets and make sure you can peel back the layers and understand what are the costs on the front end. And the thing about the, the multifamily arena is you're flipping these boxes on six month or 12 month leases typically. Mm -hmm. So you have that turnover cost constantly. You know, they're heavy in management. You've got added management fees. You've got a different level of liability exposure as an owner and an investor. Um, my worst horror stories when I was managing highly distressed assets around the country all come from the, the multifamily side. You know, we would tour assets in Texas or uh, Illinois or even Missouri or Florida. And, and I've had to tour properties with, you know, two guards on either side of me, bulletproof gear up and guns pulled because these were such distressed locations in some of these markets. God, I hope that isn't today. And I don't think that's hopefully going to be the case anymore. But, but that's an interesting sector as an owner and investor and as a lender, there can definitely be some risks associated with those types of assets. And, and again, going back to those older times, older times, 12 years ago, um, some of those assets, it makes more sense to simply shut them down than it does to carry them. The liability and the risk factors are so great. I don't think that's the case today. And, and I don't want to go off on a long tangent on that, but I, I really don't. I don't think that's the case today. But I think you just have to be very aware of what you're looking at. Right. What about office and work? What do you see? Is this a, a long-term play or is this something that's going to bounce back? And I'm talking about CBD products mainly. Because those are the ones that are hurting that right now more so than the suburb market. Yeah. I would be a really wealthy man if I knew the exact answer to this question. So, um, you know, I, I, I think everybody's trying to guess it. There's so much... There's so much that has been written and there's so many surveys out there that are people trying to figure that out. Um, what I've seen from both Cushman and Wakefield and a variety of other sources that they're coming out with is, I think ultimately most people are not sour on CBD office, but I think it's gonna be a tough couple of years. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's really the bottom line. The big companies that can probably weather this storm for a while are still keeping their people out they're working from home. I think they're doing that. In my experience, the offices where I've got control of, they're doing that because of their liability. They don't want to risk their employees coming back into a cubicle world. 
and having people get sick and take it home. They don't want to do that. The smaller companies are bringing their people back, but the bigger companies are keeping them off site. And I think that's probably going to be the trend for at least the next six months to even maybe a year yet in some of these markets. I, I do think, though, I, I firmly believe some industries work better from home, but some industries at the end of the day, we're social beings and we want to interact. We want to have a social environment. And whether you're 20 some right out of college or you're 40 or 50, you, you still want that social interaction. And, and I think overall, we're going to flatten this out for lack of a better word. I think you'll see more people working from home. But as we grow economically, I think you'll see larger office footprints. We were seeing a compression down to 100, 125 square feet per employee mm. in a variety of markets. And that's been just compressing for years. And I think you're going to see that expand out. I, I was just reading something this weekend that, you know, the whole open office model is really not proved as successful as what people were thinking years ago. Mm-hmm. And so it, it depends on the industry and the sector. But overall, I'm not sour. I think that's probably an opportunity if you've got a long horizon. I think there's definitely some opportunities there if you have a good, a good long-term horizon. I agree. Um, how do you uh, best avoid or minimize, I should say, I wouldn't say avoid, but minimize the erosion of value of your distressed assets? Um, I'm going to wear my IRAM hat here and as a CPM and, and be proud of that. But I, I think it really takes good, proactive, professional management. And, and I think what I mean most by that is it really takes somebody that is willing to dig into the details, but constantly has the long-term horizon and the big picture in play for each individual client. Um, there's a saying in the industry that, you know, we manage to our owner's goals and objectives. And so every decision you make, every problem you solve, you do that based upon your owner's objectives and how that fits long-term for them. It takes exceptionally good and active management to work through these things. And one of the challenges that I shouldn't say challenges, one of the opportunities that I keep trying to talk to people about is, What can we do to be creative with this asset? You know, we have four walls, we have a roof, we have a parking lot. Maybe it's not retail anymore. Maybe it's warehousing. Maybe it's temperature controlled storage. Maybe it's office. Maybe it's multifamily, whatever it is. There's a variety of different things that we can do with that box, so to speak. And I think we have to be creative and have to be willing to figure that out. And there in turn is good, solid management. And I think that's honestly the opportunity as well. Yeah, definitely agree. You mentioned 12 years ago, we had that financial, great financial crisis, obviously, and uh, lenders and special servicers and financial institutions found themselves in business with being turning into landlords and developers and property managers themselves, exposing, uh, I guess, exposing themselves to a potential liability, not to mention the inefficiency in playing that role. Do you see that the same situation today? I don't. I, I don't. I, I know we touched on it a little bit earlier. Um, I think the interesting thing is, fortunately or not, I, I don't know how you look at this, but we were able to lead hundreds of assets from here in the Midwest throughout the entire country. So East Coast, West Coast, throughout the entire country. 
And, and I would go into various markets on a weekly basis and tour these distressed assets and quickly try to do what we could to triage through and stabilize the assets. The, the one thing that become very apparent to me as we would take over three, four, five properties a week at different times was it really wasn't an overall economic circumstance that caused a lot of the stress and why we were staying so busy during those days. Um, three things kind of came out. First and foremost was just bad loans. And they were bad loans. They were drive-by appraisals. They were banks being pressed to produce loans over produce quality loans. And it was all about a numbers game. And, and we all know historically how that turned out, the entire CMBS market, everything. And, and I don't think you see that today. Um, I think you've seen, even if there were low cap rate valuations and investors have bought assets at highly prized um, prices, they were done with better based loans underneath it. And there was more equity in the deals. And hopefully, I don't think we'll see that. I don't think we'll see that again. Secondly, the other thing that kept us busy was frankly people that made money in other industries and disrespected commercial real estate and decided to invest in our industry. And they didn't understand what they were doing. And they traded out of whatever their other business was, but they traded those dollars and purchased commercial real estate. They didn't really clearly understand good management as we were talking about earlier. And they just lost properties because they didn't know what they were doing. And they got lazy, they, they tried to cut corners and you can only do that so long in this business. And then third, frankly, it was corruption. It was people that were buying these properties. Banks were still loaning them money. They were able to come in with little or no cash and they were able to buy properties. They were able to bleed them dry, leave with a lot of extra money out the door and then turn around and throw the keys at the banks. And, and we saw that in a number of cases. And those were obviously the ones that were the most uh, challenging and interesting to take over. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, but I, yeah, like you said, I don't quite see this, uh, the same situation now. I don't either. I, I don't either. I, I, I really don't. I'm optimistic that we're not going to get to those days again. Right. I, I really am. I, I don't think we will. I think a lot of the, everybody's kind of learned their lessons. You're going to see that in some cases, but for the most part, I just don't think you're going to see that again. Hmm. Well, thank you, John. It's very, uh, very interesting. And I wish we could continue this and uh, we'll probably do another, another one a little later, Don, if you don't mind. Yeah. But as I said, so well, receivership offers opportunities to credential real estate professionals to assist lenders with what's likely to be an increasing numbers of distressed assets. With those who understands the receivership process gaining a significant competitive edge. And that must be your case. Thank you again, John. I really appreciate it this, uh, this time with you. Thank you. So join us next time for another episode of the CRE Thought Leaders podcast. I'm Michel Couillard, and on behalf of the Counselors of Real Estate, thank you for joining us today.